Podcast. I'm Alan Cabana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, a close look at the Bush Brothers, their opposite seasons, and what could spark some change, our big preview of the Brickyard, and a special guest joins the podcast. Author Jade Gers will join us to tell us about his new book, Racer, a biography of the late John Andretti. But first, as always, this is episode 68 of Positive Regression. This is the Janet Guthrie edition. David, where to begin? She is a certified badass, an engineer before that was cool in racing, the first woman to start the Daytona 500, the first woman to start the Indianapolis 500. She didn't make a ton of starts in NASCAR, but when she did, it was in a beautiful number 68 car. It was the nicest shade of green. Go look it up. David, I looked up her stats and they were much better than I actually thought they'd be looking back on it. Uh, yeah, and let's speak to that, shall we? She earned four top 10 finishes during the 1977 season. Alan, do you care to guess how old she was that year? I did backflips when I saw this. She was age 39. Perfect. We are so on brand. She was 39. <laughs> um, yeah, Janet Guthrie was truly a pioneer in racing for sure, but capable of good results. And that was clear in 1976 and 1977. Her debut race in NASCAR was the Coca-Cola 600 and she finished 15th. Uh, not, not a bad debut. And she went on uh, a year later to finish sixth at Bristol. She finished ninth in her return visit to Charlotte. She finished ninth at Rockingham, which was traditionally uh, considered a driver's track. So Janet Guthrie, uh, not just good for a female, but good. And and with, with limited starts and stock cars to that point, she served herself well. Absolutely. I mean, look, in that, that one season you mentioned, four top tens and 19 starts. I mean, there were plenty of people that would love four top tens for a season. Uh, again, I was just surprised looking back on it because there is a wonderful race sub uh, documentary, did one of those long form pieces. And it was just so interesting to hear her story and hear some of the roadblocks, obviously, she came up against and, you know, getting her to that first 600 with Humpy Wheeler and everything and and just the, the roadblocks and the, the stuff she went through both at Indy and, you know, via the NASCAR route. It was such an interesting story. It really was. And it gave uh, credence to the notion that maybe if she had started her stock car career a little bit earlier or had even just gone on a little bit longer, um, could have seen some more results, could have been realistically the first ever female NASCAR race winner at the sports top level if that experience had backed her up. That was that was her undoing, just entering so late in her career, we seem to talk about it with a lot of these drivers back at this point in time that their starts came late. And if they had just had more experience, maybe we would have been able to have seen something more. We can chalk Janet Guthrie up into that conversation as well. Good stuff. And she was also a member of the latest National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame class. So congratulations to Janet Guthrie. Let's move on to this week's first topic, David, the Bush brothers, because looking at the standings now, defending champion Kyle Bush has no playoff points. This time last year, he already had four wins. He was rolling along. And then we look at his brother, Kurt Bush, having another good start to the season. Perhaps we could call it overachieving. We can talk about that. But David, you know, I wanted to talk about Kyle Bush, and you said, let's just talk about the Bush brothers because they're both having quite interesting seasons up to this point. 
Yeah. And I want to give ourselves a pat on the back because at the end of the season last year or at the end of every playoff round, we assigned fixes to the eliminated drivers in the playoffs. And your fix for Kurt Busch was to repair his restarts gone afoul. His numbers were decidedly low last year uh, based on his past. And I delivered a fix to Kyle Busch, even though he won a championship, the path to getting to Homestead was not at all desirable. I actually had to look back into the archives of my time at The Athletic and the week leading into Homestead. I wrote that he found himself in the role as underdog going into that race, and there was good reason for that. But what I found interesting was the fix that I wanted to focus on was the disconnect in his race long speed and fourth quarter speed, which was present. And I was concerned that that would drift into the new year. And here we are, we're 15 races in and speed is a problem with Kyle Busch. Yeah. And if we were, I mean, just taking the high view, I mean, for people who don't maybe recall the the second half of 2019 was not great for Kyle Busch, right? There was a long winless streak and he happened to win the big one. I mean, the one that he won was Homestead. So he walks away as champion, but as a whole, the second half was not good. So the fact that he won Homestead obviously stands out for obvious reasons, but as a whole, uh, I think what you're saying there, David, is some of those issues carry over over into 2020, especially with a similar package. Yeah. So I can, I can backtrack a little bit. They were, uh, Kyle Busch and Adam Stevens were getting significantly slower as races progressed during the second half of that season. And in the playoffs specifically, they ranked 11th in the fourth quarter speed category going into the season finale. And when I wrote that he was the underdog, it was sort of in that vein because his competition was Martin Truex, Kevin Harvick, and Denny Hamlin, they ranked first, second, and fifth in that same category. And that seems like a problem, right? It's a pretty valid thing to write. And then lo and behold, he goes out and wins <laughs> the championship. But if you want to look at it from where things started going bad until now, we have a 37 race sample size, and that's over a season where Kyle Busch has just one win. And you're right. He picked the right race to win at Homestead. But given that this is Kyle Busch, and when we think of Kyle Busch, we think of wins because relative to what he's done in the past, that makes a lot of sense. He hasn't been that kind of Kyle Busch. And to me, it it does seem to stem with his speed this season. He currently ranks ninth in central speed. That's the lowest we've seen him in the last few years. He still ranks sixth in peer in the production equal equipment rating. He's finished sixth or better in over half of his start. So he is getting results despite not having the kind of speed that he clearly would want at his disposal. And I thought it was pretty interesting. So he he crashed out uh, first race that he's crashed out of in 2020 this past weekend at Pocono. And there was a lot to unpack with his post race or post crash interview. But he gave some insight into what might be wrong with the 18 team. He said once things get back to normal and he's able to practice mm. his car, then 
then they will get back to their their winning ways. That was the illusion. And Alan, what screamed out to me about that was that if he's saying that, if he is begging for practice sessions, I'll be honest, my first inclination was that the JGR Sim program and how they are setting race cars up based on what their software is telling them to do clearly is not working for Kyle Busch. It doesn't mean it's not working at JGR because Denny Hamlin has had fast cars. Martin Truex was really fast at Martinsville. So it's not something that lies within the organization. It's just existing with this one team. And that's interesting. That was my first assumption when I heard him say that. I went back and looked because my curiosity was peaked. Before the stoppage, Kyle Busch ranked 16th, 6th, and 5th in the three races on the non-drafting ovals. That's not blowing anybody away. That's not terrific, and that's certainly not where we thought the reigning champion would sit in the speed hierarchy. So while I believe him, I'm sure that, that more practice could help them. This problem existed before the stoppage. It existed before this season started, if we're considering what happened last year. And I think that falls into a problem with communication between driver and crew chief, because clearly the other JGR cars are finding speed in pockets. They are not. And I don't know. That's something that's going to have to change going forward. Yeah. And that's the, the question we would naturally ask. How could this change? How could Kyle Busch get better? Practice may be one thing. Uh, David Wilson over at TRD, he alluded to that as well. Jeff Gluck had a nice write-up about that in his uh, notes column uh, this week for The Athletic, but uh, also referring to the practice issue. But so, so how do you improve that communication, David? Is it that simple? Is that Could that turn around Kyle Busch's season? So the answer is easy, right? The answer <laughs> is that he's Kyle Busch. And eventually, one day, he will again race like Kyle Busch. I, I think that everybody can mentally get to that point. But getting to the point where that is actually happening in real life is difficult. Because is it practice? Is it improved communication? Are they simply not communicating Kyle Busch and Adam Stevens? Because it wasn't going great at the end of last year. And is this problem even related to last year's problem, or is this something completely new and equally horrible? I don't know. I've looked at his fourth quarter speed this year, and there's a few ways that our listeners can take this. Their current fourth quarter speed ranking fares better than their overall speed ranking. And that tells us that they are getting faster relative to the field right now as a race progresses. And if he is begging for more practice time, then maybe there is some proof into his line of thinking right here that they just need track time to get the car where it needs to be instead of doing that during practice or doing it during a race. Now, the problem though, is that initial speed is so bad that he isn't leapfrogging the likes of Kevin Harvick or Denny Hamlin or Chase Elliott or any of the Penske cars. He's leapfrogging his brother, Kurt, and he's leapfrogging <laughs> Alex Bowman in the speed department. And that is not where Kyle Busch wants to be or should be. So I'm going to venture to guess that until we see more practice time and can know for certain that that was what was missing 
this is going to be a slog of a season if it uh, if it keeps going this way. Yeah, again, the curse of the standard we've talked about on this podcast before. I mean, Kyle Busch has eight top tens. Uh, a lot of teams would love to have that, but these are not Kyle Busch-ish numbers, if you will. So that's why we're uh, exploring it and, and drilling down to see what's going on over there. Uh, David, Kyle Busch having a non-Kyle Busch-like season. Let's look at his brother, though, who is once again... I don't know if it's fair to say overachieving. I mean, he's Kurt Busch. He's one of the the best drivers out there in the last 20 years. So I don't know if overachieving is the uh, the kind way to put it, but Kurt Busch is having a damn good year in that one car. What what should we look at right now? Yeah, I don't I don't know if we can consider it overachieving so much that it's not believable. I think he's achieving very well <laughs> just just based on where he is. He, so the Ganassi one car ranks 12th in central speed. He is averaging a 10.3 place finish on the non-drafting ovals. So he's getting a little bit better finishes out of the speed that is measured from his car. He ranks seventh in pier. That is one spot behind his brother. But Kurt's 2.15 pier after both Pocono races is far past his projected rating for the 2020 season. And I believe that is because he hasn't displayed many weaknesses, if any, uh, so far this season. He is a positive surplus passer. And a big change that I already mentioned from last year to this year are his restarts. That That is the change. He ranks seventh all-in among series regulars in retention rate with a 30-spot increase wow. in positions earned from last year to this year. His top 15 efficiency, and as a reminder, that is the difference between the frequency in which a driver finishes inside the top 15 and the uh, amount of time that he actually runs in the top 15, it is only 8.7 percentage points. And that is a fairly slim margin at this point in the season, which means, yeah, these are believable finishes. Kurt Busch is finishing around where he is running. Certainly, based on his advanced age, regression is always looming. But when I break down the one team as a team, as one single unit, I think there could be regression on the horizon, but maybe not from Kurt. Crew chief Matt McCall uh, retained Kurt Busch's running position during green flag pit cycles when relinquishing a top five spot only 22% of the time in 2019. Now, they haven't had many of those cycles uh, this year where they're running up front and having to relinquish that kind of track position. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But last year, when evaluating McCall's pit calls, his unorthodox pitting, whether that's a short pit or a long pit, he only did that six times last year across 61 total green flag pit cycles to just go against the grain of the most populated uh, pit stop laps. He short pitted on five of those six. He only long pitted once in those 61 tries. So that tells us he is routinely conventional. He has right now given Kurt Busch three positions on normal tracks this year, and that is compared to an 11-position loss last year. And unless Matt McCall goes vastly different in how he's calling races, if we see more short pit and long pit calls from him, 
then I can see a number going uh, hard in one direction or another. But right now it's just kind of in the center, pretty, pretty conservative. I personally don't see much changing. And if nothing changes, his numbers uh, for positions gained or lost remains relatively low. And those retention numbers at the top of the field are still lousy. Now, one thing comes to mind that has really helped this team is the post-COVID-19 protocol is actually helping the one team in this regard because the competition cautions that have been added due to a lack of practice or just or the, you know, the terrible weather that we've been having or both. I don't know. It's been a weird season. It has saved this team from itself somewhat, because if these kinds of pit calls were problematic last year and those opportunities are no longer on the table because we've eliminated a large chunk of them, thanks to some of the early competition cautions, then this is pretty interesting. You're not seeing a situation where their weakness comes to the surface. And if they have no weaknesses, if they continue achieving as they are, then this is going to be a little bit more than a fringe playoff team, certainly not a favorite, but not on uh, not on the early cut fringes that you might think they were or or where they were last year around this point in time after yeah. they won Kentucky it was yeah. all downhill and tell me about that it. yes we 2019 come out of the box hot peak in Kentucky right around this time is there anything comparable to that where we could see that regression or that drop off is there anything you're seeing that would be similar uh no not not right now. I know that there are some similar tones, but keep in mind last year he was getting far better finishes than what his central speed indicated. And when we were talking about that, we were pointing to his poor restarting, how the numbers were dipping, how the top 15 efficiency was really high, and we just saw that coming back. And we called it as such that he was going to be a regression candidate in the second half of the season. And he was. I tweeted after he won that race at Kentucky that his season probably peaked. Yeah, and what a one, of his crew, <laughs> one of his crew guys got really mad at me on Twitter. And it turns out, I mean, I wasn't wasn't trying to put Kurt Bush down, but it turns out, yeah, I was I was right because math. And that's how that's how the season wrapped up for him. But now it's just a little bit different because everything that he has achieved this year has been exactly what the team's effort told us it was going to be. And the only thing that I can see that would rattle them from where they currently are is if if NASCAR does indeed go back to normal. There are practice sessions and thus no more competition cautions. Maybe the weather gets right and there's less cautions in general. And Matt McCall is forced to act on his own decision making. Unless he changes his decision making, then we we have to assume it's going to be the same. And last year's input wasn't very good. Uh, crew chiefs, of course, can change their stripes. But until we see it, we can't certainly assume that. How interesting. The lack of practice hurting one Bush brother, helping the other. Let's see what happens as we turn the page into July. 
Speaking of July, our first race this month, we're moving on to the Brickyard. David, always a special place in my heart for Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the stock cars going way back to 1994. So let's talk about this year's edition, 2020. Uh, We are coming straight off of Pocono. A lot of people compare these two tracks, Pocono and Indianapolis. You know, if you're good at Pocono, you'll be good at Indy. But it's never been back-to-back like this before. So, you know, with with the flat corners, two and a half mile tracks, does this still apply on the surface? Are we going to see Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin's of the world do well at Indianapolis simply because we saw them dominate Pocono just a few days ago? I'm not so certain that it's a one-to-one comparison. I mean, certainly if uh, the cars that had straightaway speed at Pocono should probably have straightaway speed at Indianapolis and the straightaways are distinct uh, portions of both of those racetracks, but Indy is a little bit different. You kind of have to be totally on your game, both in terms of car and in terms of strategy, because Indy doesn't offer a lot of opportunity. It's a one groove racetrack, and that should bear out on Sunday. Even with this rules package, straightforward passing will be hard to come by. Uh, Pocono does share similarities, but there were a few passing grooves that we saw at Pocono and they have distinct corners in which to make those passes. So it allows drivers to be somewhat creative. But for the most part, what we'll see this weekend are faster cars overtaking slower cars and the drivers that can get in and out of pass encounters quickly will set themselves up for a good day. And initially, at least in the first stage, we'll see a lot of movement due to uh, the nature of this dynamic, which is one of the things that comes with not having qualifying. Yeah, we talked about lack of practice. What does not have that, that lack of qualifying do? Because, I mean, you would think relatively the way the points are stacked up, you, you know, you would line up or there's a little bit of a jumble there, but the fast cars are going to be in front. But is it enough of a jumble to provide at least at the beginning of the race? Uh, some odd situations. This does make it interesting on the initial run, right? It doesn't make for great TV when the fastest car on pole day gets clean air first and has a field day, but at least without qualifying, there is a chance where an early positional battle is set up. So that could be fun. Um, and this has always been a track position race ever since NASCAR started going here in 1994. So now it forces fast teams who were just going to rely on clean air to turn in a good strategy day or just incentivize them even more to do that. Fast cars do very well at Indianapolis. However, based on this format that we're going to see this weekend, there's more required. And I think the winner this weekend will be decided by a number of things, speed included, but there's a chance it will require a more robust skill set. So you you can be fast and have a strategy or fast and have an efficient passer behind the wheel. And that's not always the case. My hope is that this is a race that forces each team to have more than one note in order to be successful. 
talking with some of our friends in the garage who listen. Uh, I know some are, would, the way you just described David, it's funny because that, that's exactly what I would think of Kyle Bush. And uh, a lot of, uh, and obviously he has success at the Brickyard, but people, despite what happened in Pocono, uh, there are obviously some people uh, a little, I don't know about worried is the word, but they're certainly looking for Kyle Bush to strike back at a place like Indy, to have some of that speed, to find some of that downforce and make those efficient passes. It sounds like something Kyle Bush could certainly do. <laughs> Yeah, and I, it's going to be that lack of speed that makes me nervous somewhat. So if we consider who's fast right now uh, and how that could impact this weekend's race, the fastest cars in the series per central speed are Chase Elliott, Ryan Blaney, Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano, Martin Truex, and Denny Hamlin. Those are the six drivers with the fastest cars. Kyle Busch isn't in that conversation, and and really... Chase Elliott might not be as well. Uh, we talked about Hendrick speed last season on flat tracks in advance of Pocono on our positive regression videos on Twitter. Uh, that speed was bad and it was bad this past weekend. Hendrick was practically absent from the first race and included in this flat track category is Indianapolis because there's no banking at Indy. Chase Elliott had the 21st fastest car in last year's Indianapolis race, and he was not a factor. So like I said, I think it'll require more than speed to get the job done on Sunday, but speed is also a prerequisite. And that's where I think it's going to remove Kyle Busch and Chase Elliott potentially from this conversation. Hmm. That's why I like the rest of that group a lot more, especially Harvick and Hamlin, because the manner in which they've been winning, which has been speed as well as strategy, those two things as a combination has sort of been their MO ever since we restarted the season at Darlington. It's been those two, and it makes them obvious favorites this weekend. It has been fun to watch the strategy, especially play out uh, at the homesteads and Poconos of the world. Uh, I'm learning a lot more. I hope our listeners are too, as we uh, you know watch and tweet along during these races. I'm trying to, we're all trying to help each other out because I think these strategy calls are, are damn uh, pretty damn interesting. Let's move on to our contrarian contenders for Indy, David. Uh, last week in that first Pocono race, our contrarian contenders crashed each other, so that was pretty funny. We were texting back and forth uh, to to some disappointed listeners, but uh, let, let's move on to Indy. Who who is your contrarian contender for Indianapolis? Ooh, I've been taking a beating in this segment <laughs> the last few weeks, so I'm. I'm going to hit the reset button and I'm going to go with my OG contrarian contender oh, oh and no. that's Ryan Newman. Oh, good. Yeah. Is that is this also your pick? No, I was worried you were going to pick my pick. So tell me about oh, okay, Ryan Newman okay. at the Brickyard. Okay. Form, former All winner. Right. Oh, yeah, former winner. And he finished third, 10th, and 8th in his last three races at Indianapolis. Um, now, last year's race, it should be said that there was an incentive to do well. He was on the brink of qualifying for the playoffs, but really that should not make a difference because it's as valuable to do well at Indy this weekend as it would be if Indy was the final race of the regular season. And in last year's race, he had the 18th fastest car in central speed. That's on par with what we saw last Sunday at Pocono. He had the 19th fastest car. Uh, but crew chief Scott Graves moved him from 18th to fourth in the running order on a green flag pit cycle, thanks to a long pitting strategy. And that's what it's probably going to take for any, any of these guys to really traverse through the field uh, and pick up a lot of positions at once. It's going to be green flag pit cycles. Um, I like Newman to do it, but also his history there, he's able to maintain these positions very well. 
All right, I'm going to go with a driver who's one of, you mentioned, you know, tr trying to pick up these spots, how difficult it may be to pass. So I'm going with one of the best restarters of the year so far, David. I'm going with Matt DiBenedetto. Matt DiBenedetto having a good year so far in that 21 car. Last week, if we believe success at Pocono may breed some success at Indianapolis. You look back, I know he had a 13th place finish, but when you look at total points scored, you know, in terms of stage points and everything, Matt DiBenedetto was sixth most points in the first race, seventh most in the second race at Pocono. So I'm putting all that together, thinking something similar at the flat track at Indy. Again, with his restart ability, it'll be so important. I think Matt DiBenedetto has a great weekend at Indianapolis. What do you think? I believe he didn't he finish eighth in a BK racing car one year. I want to say that is the knowledge. I do not know. <laughs> I feel I, I feel like he's had uh, some low key good finishes. And I was looking up from an organizational standpoint, the uh, the three best organizations at Indy across the last three years were Penske, Stuart Haas and Wood Brothers. Hmm. And De Benedetto checks two of those boxes with <laughs> brothers alliance so i'd say that is very good all right we'll see what they can do uh don't bet your mortgage i don't want to hear about it on twitter if you, you know you did something bad but you know we, you can trust in us don't worry <laughs> <laughs> our special guest today here on positive regression is jade gers jade along with the late john andretti wrote the book racer a biography of john's life and career as a race car driver jade welcome to positive regression thank you guys it's great to be here i appreciate it yeah, well, no, it's really an honor to have you on because uh, anybody who's read any of your books or just knows your past, knows your history in racing and, and how in-depth you can get on some of these subjects. So uh, the book that's about to come out, you co-wrote it with John while he was fighting colon cancer. And it's just clear you you tr he entrusted you to tell his story. You two were more than acquaintances. How did that relationship come to be and why? how important is it for you to get this right in terms of telling John's story the way he wanted it told? Uh, it really began in 2004. I was the Budweiser PR rep with Dale Earnhardt Jr. And when Jr. got burnt badly in the sports car accident in 2004, uh, DEI brought in John Andretti as our, uh, the backup driver. So I got to know John a little bit there and he just, he, is such a great storyteller and such a good guy that that just that struck struck me at that time and continued to do so. And um, sadly, in 2017, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I, I had followed that online quite a bit and hadn't really been in in touch with him until a friend of mine and I were talking. And it just it hit me like a bolt of lightning that John was someone that deserved to have his story told. And I thought, oh my God, why didn't I think of this earlier? So I reached out to see if he was interested. and He immediately said, yes. He said, maybe something good can come of this. Meaning uh, he uh, wanted to use his illness to help raise awareness for colon cancer and encourage people to get their colonoscopies uh, at or before the age of 50. So here's a guy who took... Uh, you know, terrible cancer, terrible illness, and turned it into uh, a public good. Uh, his attempt to prevent others from going through the pain that he and his family went through. So that's that's really how it got started. That's the the long story of your your initial question. Yeah, Jade, I had the pleasure of uh, of reading this book already, and it's outstanding. And 
I could talk about this with you for a very long time. But I think the the thing that hit on me the most is I didn't know John Andretti personally, but he was a multifaceted individual and he was a rarity in racing that he was a college educated race car driver. And it was, this was clear in your book that he wasn't a one note human being. So for you and getting to know him and telling this story, which of these notes, which of these facets did you find yourself connecting with the most? I, I was struck kind of, as you mentioned, his diversity uh, at his philosophy on life. Uh, I mean, he was always a, a deep thinker, but having gone through three years of fighting uh, his cancer, uh, it just gave him a real depth of feeling, a depth of character that, uh, you know, I think after his passing and in these horrible times we're in right now, I, th- I think his message is even more um, helpful to the way we're living right now uh, than ever before. Um, you know, the title of the book is Racer, but honestly, uh, from page one to the last page, for him, it's about friends and family. Uh, family is the major thread through this. And I think that really comes through amongst pretty much every great racing story that he tells. There's some family element. Um, I will say you mentioned uh, that he did go to college and he did not stop racing in that time. He lived with uh, Mario and uh, his cousin Michael in their house in Pennsylvania, but still drove uh, sprint cars and midgets. Uh, out of Indianapolis. So his round trip each weekend, his commute was about 1,300 miles, 1,300 miles round trip. So that alone to me shows the dedication he had to racing while at the same time being dedicated to getting his college degree and, and sticking in there and graduating in a four-year period. Jade, when I think of the highlights of John's career, obviously the, the cup wins, you know, I'm primarily a cup fan growing up, but something that has always struck me and will always for any driver that does it is the double, the Memorial Day double of Indianapolis in the Coke 600. Uh, John was the first one to attempt it. Uh, and I, I was just, you know, what do you know about his mindset in terms of, was it about making history? Was it about just racing 1,100 miles that day? Uh, <laughs> because to me, it's so significant for, it's so old school for a driver to attempt that, to have the the skill and the discipline to do both of those things. But for him to be the first, what went into that in his head? Well, it, it, he established early in his career that he, he loved to drive. He loved to race. And the fact that he had driven and competed in, you know, untold amount of categories and different types of racing. Um, that was just how he is. He just loved to race and he loved doing different things. He, we actually, there's a, an entire chapter devoted to the double and he describes a meeting with, uh, Humpy Wheeler, who at that time was kind of the legendary promoter at Charlotte Motor Speedway and always looking for new ideas to promote the 600. And, Humpy had him in his office and he said, you know, it can be done to do both. And John thought, well, if it can be done, I might as well be the guy to do it. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't like it was this huge uh, 
corporate sponsor driven effort uh, to, to do this. It literally was John and Humpy sitting in a room. And uh, once John agreed to do it, he said, Suddenly, he, had, he didn't hear from Humpy anymore. He was on his own, and uh, he really goes into the logistics of what it took and just some of the amazing stories of, uh, of that day, of the double uh, starting in the morning and, uh, in Indianapolis and then uh, flying immediately to Charlotte for the, the 600. So um, a lot of humor in that chapter and a lot of details about how he was able to become the first to pull that off. Jade, as with... Any biography that's on the bookshelf, there uh, was some drama contained in this one. And our predominantly NASCAR-based audience would find his dealings with Petty Enterprises and specifically crew chief Robbie Loomis very interesting. You go into detail in this story, but the short of it is that when time came to potentially renew his contract with Petty Enterprises, John Andretti talked to Robbie Loomis, made sure that Robbie Loomis was going to stay there for the long haul. John signed the contract. Robbie Loomis bailed for Hendrick Motorsports to become Jeff Gordon's crew chief. And I got to tell you, this felt as if, if this was something that had been forgiven by John. He probably wouldn't have put it in the book, but he did. So I'm curious, when you got to this point and you were writing about it, how did you feel about this drama? Uh, I thought it was fascinating. Um, the, the, there's, you know, there's always so many different sides to the story. Um, the, the, when John first drove for the Petties, uh, he only drove a partial season for them. They uh, replaced Wally Dallenbach with John in his rookie season of 94. And at the end of that year, um, which John talks about in the book, he greatly regretted for the first and last time in his career, he chased the money. He went to a new team and just regretted it uh, terribly. So he knew that Loomis was hurt by that, by John leaving. Then to have it turn around when John went back to Petty and had assurances from uh, from Loomis that, uh, that they were in this together, they were really going to do it as a duo. Um, then to you know to have Robbie then leave to to go work with Hendrick and Jeff Gordon. John says, "Yeah, I understood. It made sense, but uh, there's certainly a sense of hurt in John that that, that comes through." Uh, and they did actually use it the cliche kiss and make up, I guess. Uh, years later, when John went back to the Indy 500, he invited Richard Petty, and, uh, Robbie Loomis, and a few other folks to come to the 500 and uh, basically be his guest for a day. And so it, it sounds like they patched it up, but there's very clearly uh, some hurt feelings there. And, and, you know, that's part of racing. And John admits he took things personally rather than always looking at it from a business standpoint uh he says he thinks it paid off in some circumstances and it really bit him in others and that that was one where i think it kind of bit him a bit jade just to uh shift gears here with indycar returning to indianapolis this coming weekend it's not for the 500 but it is for the grand prix which i feel for the last two years has been an exceptional race, uh, considering Scott Dixon's drive from 18 to second in 2018, and then Simon Pagenaud's 
uh, rain-soaked uh, brilliance, <laughs> we'll call it last year. Um, IndyCar road course and street car, uh, street course races are exciting to me, but I want you to play my therapist right now. <laughs> okay. I want I, I, I want you to tell me why I feel the way I feel. Road course and street course races in IndyCar are exciting, and there is this exotic feeling to all of it. But if you had to get me to sit down and watch an IndyCar race at Iowa Speedway, I might pass on that. Jade, why do I feel the way that I feel about that? <laughs> well, I, I agree with you on the the road course and street courses. The the IndyCar series, easy for me to say, it, it is so competitive right now. Uh, in the it, what we called the old days, the good old days, you'd have you know ten legends up front battling for the win, and the rest of the field was kind of scrubs or. Uh, guys with uh, reputations and names that uh, we, you know, we're not polite and we're not uh, highly considered. The the series right now, I think, is as deep and as skilled driver-wise as it ever has been, and the teams as well are are on a much more equal level. Even though we still see the juggernauts of Penske and Ganassi up up front, and the Brickyard, the the, the road course race. Honestly, that course got a lot of criticism in the Formula One days that it was it was just uninteresting as of a circuit. But yet, when they put Indy cars on it, um, it just has has produced some sparkling races. You mentioned it. I, I think the battles uh, with Dixon and Pagano, uh, it, it, they've just been thrilling to see. And uh, so, I, I don't know what kind of uh, racing you're hoping for or looking for but it's lived up to the to the hype the last couple of years and i'm hopeful we're going to see that again this year uh i also think iowa is great it's uh that's a lot of fun there that it is such a fast track at less than a mile it's it's kind of the old uh like when you were a kid and you'd uh tie a rope or tie a, a rock on the end of a string and you'd swing that sucker around. I think that's <laughs> kind of how the indie cars feel there. Like they're uh, on a string and just, it's just amazing that they run so close at such high speed in, uh, you know, in such tight quarters. Jade, not, you're not only a good author, you're a great uh, promoter for the IndyCar series. So looking forward to that. But uh, no, no, really, with, with your with your writing ability, your background, and John's story, everybody should be looking forward to this book coming out. So tell us uh, how how we can get it when it comes out. When we make an excerpt or two, uh, tell tell us all about it. Well, uh, you can find excerpts uh, all over the place. Actually, uh, we've done a, a lot lot of those uh, because John drove different types of cars we have had uh, uh, excerpts at nascar.com uh, racer.com um, auto week magazine auto sport magazine in europe with a story about when john raced at the 24 hours of Le Mans. Uh, so uh, those are all out there uh, if you want to grab a, a, an excerpt to get a sense of the book uh, the best bet right now is to order from the publisher at octanepress.com, octanepress.com. You can also pre-order it. Uh, the cliche st- the saying is wherever you find books. Uh, 
uh, which, you know, in the current status, uh, that probably means online. So Amazon or any, anywhere else that you might order it um, is available. One thing we want to really emphasize, John is very, was very uh, philanthropic, and that comes through in the book. He created a charity called Race for Riley, which raises money for the uh, Riley Children's Hospital in, in Indianapolis, while he was alive, he raised more than $4.8 million for the kids. Wow. So to honor that, uh, we worked with the Andretti family after John's passing, and we decided that 10% of all proceeds of the book uh, will go to the Riley Children's Foundation, which is the charitable arm of the, the hospital there. So uh, you get a, a book with about a great guy with great stories and you can feel good about uh, donating a, a small bit of that total to uh, to kids that really need it so uh, we're really proud of that great work uh, and we all look forward to reading this book and learning more about john so jade gers thank you for joining us here on positive regression david allen thank you so much i really appreciate you having me on and uh, happy to come back and uh, talk racing anytime you like Oh, okay, don't All forget, right. we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of all these episodes, it's available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This helps in spreading the word. We do notice it, and it is so appreciated because word of mouth, uh, you know, a review, it's the best way to get the word out there. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them. Hit us up on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on this week? This week on motorsportsanalytics.com, a look at Daytona prototype central speed during IMSA sprint races, what it means, why the sprint races are part and parcel to the sports car season, and how engineers approach these events. I interviewed Jonathan Nugid of Acura Team Penske to get a sense of of this. And that was pretty fascinating. Uh, also a look at green flag pit cycle strategy on road courses and street courses in IndyCar. Their season will pick back up this weekend with Indianapolis and uh, some interesting stuff there. So please check that out too. All right. Good stuff. Over on Race Hub, uh, I interviewed Eric Jones this week for our A-list segment. We talked about everything from free agency for uh, to me forcing him to pick between Bob Seger and Kid Rock in terms of his favorite Michigan uh, musician. So we've covered it all. Check out the, my, uh, my Twitter page for that. Again, the A-list on Race Hub. And then just keep it uh, on, well, oh, you know what? The races aren't on Fox this weekend, but just make sure you watch some racing on that other network. But we'll be back on Fox there soon and enjoy the brickyard it's one of my favorite tracks and uh, uh hopefully they they produce some good racing and good strategy calls this weekend but just make sure you watch racing and then watch race up every every weeknight monday through thursday at 6 p.m on fs1 for david smith i'm alan cavana thank you for joining us here on motorsports analytics positive regression liked me that way deal because it's one thing to receive mcdonald's but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you mcdonald's breakfast still hot in the bag appreciate you 
There's a deal for every morning. Now grab two loaded sausage burritos for only three bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 